Hi, everybody. Wynn Claybaugh here, and welcome to another wonderful podcast interview with Masters. Lorenzo Lewis, this wonderful man that I'm sitting with today, is a social entrepreneur, mental health expert and advocate, motivational speaker, author, coach, and community leader from Little Rock, Arkansas. Lorenzo is best known for founding the Confess Project of America, where he remains chief visionary officer. I love that title. You made that one up, and I think it's it's wonderful. Lorenzo has transformed the organization into a national grassroots movement. His work has been featured in countless media outlets, including Oprah Magazine, BET, CNN's Great Big Story, NPR's Weekend Edition, The Today Show, Revolt on PBS, Black Enterprise, Men's Health, Huffington Post, my gosh, that list is incredible, as well as brands such as Kenneth Cole and the Minnesota Vikings. He has made guest speaking appearances at Google, Snapchat, Stanford University, Purdue University, Gillette, P&G, and the Bill and Hillary Clinton Foundation, which we're going to talk about straight up. Born to an incarcerated mother, Lorenzo struggled with depression throughout his youth. Growing up, he said his aunt's hair salon brought him comfort. And that's going to be a big topic during this interview as well. After a decade of working in behavioral health, Lewis founded the Confess Project in 2016, an Arkansas-based social enterprise that offers mental health programs for men of color and now other community gatekeepers. Their team, get this, has trained over 3,500 barbers in more than 62 cities. So Lorenzo, obviously I was reading that, but I didn't want to miss anything because all of it is just, just fantastic and what you have done. And, you know, I, I think I was first introduced to you through listening to Mel Robbins podcast with you. I, I love her and I follow her. And of course, she's only going to choose the best of the best. And since you were chosen for that, and then to dig in deeper and to talk to other friends, I was just with Kevin Hines a couple of days ago, and Kevin absolutely loves you. The work that you're doing, and you're absolutely making your presence known throughout the mental health community. And so I'm so grateful that you said yes to be a part of my master podcast. So thank you so much for being here. Absolutely. No, when it's, it's a pleasure, and I'm Really grateful to share space, um, be a part of the master's legacy and the work that you're doing as well in your professional light and, and personal light and helping people. So thank you again. Actually, you know, thanks for using that word legacy, because it is for me, master's has become a legacy doing this since 1994. And I always tell people that the first person I interviewed was Vidal Sassoon. So he kind of set that standard of talking about a legacy. Uh, and you absolutely are part of that incredible list. And I have to just bring this up straight up. You spoke at the Clinton Global Initiative in New York, and you were introduced onto that stage right after the Pope. Yeah, you you, yeah. you followed the Pope. What were you feeling <laughs> at that moment? Uh, it was a, it was really an ecstatic feeling. Um, I, I, you know, I've been a part of the CGI network and uh, just uh, with amazing people that's doing amazing things across the world. And so I was asked to come in and just really, you know, uh, start off as, hey, come in and present to a group about, you know, our impact and what we've been able to accomplish since being in the network. And then it really escalated um, to where they asked me to do the main stage. And then it went further where, hey, we want you to open up right after, you know, President Clinton and the Pope's conversation that will be, you know, telecom while he's in the Vatican. And so at that point, it, <laughs> I think it was one nervousness obviously um anxiety to say the least but also just recognizing the power of what we've been able to accomplish and how it's transitioning transmitting to helping people i always want to go back to that because all what we do is about helping people um empowering people empowering the underdogs the smaller people that people forget about and even shining a light on fields like barbering and cosmetology and so in that moment, it was really illuminating all of that, following the Pope, um, lifting that up. And I'm just really still ecstatic that they chose us to to give our message behind that. And so I, I say it's a collective gratitude because I didn't get here alone. Um, I've been you know, supported by the grooming industry now for the last 
you know, seven years, but I've been a part of this space in a, in a lifetime. I own two beauty shops for over a couple of decades. And so, you know, I'm just grateful that that message has now resonated to getting on the stage with the Pope. And, and hopefully it continues to resonate in the heart of others globally. So, Well, congratulations. I need to send my uh, resume to the Pope. Maybe I'll get that kind of an opportunity. Huh? <laughs> so you have to tell your story, uh, your story of being born to an incarcerated mother. So your, your mother was in prison and that's where you were born. And your father was also incarcerated. So yeah, are you okay if we just start right from the very beginning and, and share that very impactful story? Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, uh, life started off, uh, I always tell people it started off in bondage and I was now born free, um, like most people. And so, you know, I think that starts in a place of uh, survival, a uh, place of deficit in some sense, but being able to now illuminate that into a story of, of beauty and freedom now, because, you know, you, there is possibility of getting to the other side. And so my mother and father obviously lived a very different life, uh, coming from poverty themselves, coming from, you know, generational wealth gap and different challenges they faced. Their decisions obviously um, landed them in, you know, what we know is one of the, um, the world's, you know, illness institutions, which is uh, our prison industrial complex. And so when we think about their decisions and, and how did they move navigate in the world, so happily um, a child was brought into that as well. And so, you know, I believe... You know, thinking back on it, uh, I think they had all great intent. I think they were just living in a place where they had to live in survival. They had to think about living and, and making decisions for what they thought was best. Um, but it, it led them into, you know, not being in the best places. And so, but I'm grateful. There's a, a beautiful side of that happening. Grew up with my aunt. She, you know, helped to escape me from that situation, you know, being that she was incarcerated. Uh, my next step was going to child services, uh, foster care. And so, you know, a guardian stepping in. And this is what's really powerful about the work we do. We train community gatekeepers now on mental health. But imagine my aunt stepping in as a guardian. So that's just the power of even the work that we do in my story of how she stepped in to help make a difference um, in the life of someone that she um, didn't bring into this world, but obviously connected to in some sense. And I think that even in itself, it's kind of marinating on we all can make a difference. We all can reach out and help someone and play a really a huge role, regardless if they're ours or connected to us or not. And so that's my story. And I think a lesson around that story is, you know, it's OK to jump right in and, and reach out. So you also share that part of your story is that you almost re-entered the system of mass incarceration at the age of 17. What was happening then? You know, at that time, you know, found myself a part of gangs, really backing up, um, didn't know myself, you know, growing up without a mother and father, not growing up with my siblings. I lacked identity. I lacked feeling loved and seen, but that led to a lot of, you know, negative behaviors, a lot of misconstrued thoughts that truly challenged who I was and how I saw the world. And it led me to being a part of a gang and, you know, picking up a weapon and feeling that I wanted to get involved in activities that wasn't going to be the best for me. And it landed me in a juvenile detention facility. And so, you know, going through that situation really was an eye opener. I never forget being incarcerated. All I could think about was my mother and father because I knew that that's where my life started. It was a sense of loneliness that really occurred during this small period of time. But also it was a sense of, I don't ever want to be here again. And if I can get another chance to get out, I'll never return. And I haven't, and I'm grateful to be 35. I've never been back to jail again. And in so many ways, that's encouraging, but that's also it was quite um, nerve wracking for me as well. As you can imagine, the anxiety uh, being born in jail and reentering jail, and you know, and so just grateful that I took that as a way of going to get a college degree, going to work into the mental health and the juvenile justice field. Um, three years after my release, I went and worked in the field, and I started to really serve and help others. Um, working with young men and young women that looked like me, that didn't look like me, that just came from challenging backgrounds and made a difference. And so 
Uh, but it started more as well, just I needed a job, right? And I remember promising the judge that, you know, I wouldn't come back and that she didn't have to worry about seeing me again and I would make my life right. So going to college, I found myself working, you know, in the um, social services field, right? Helping young people, working with people that's, you know, dealing with, you know, extreme mental health illnesses. And then that turned into what we're doing today, right? And so, you know, just grateful that one opportunity led to something else. And, and today, you know, it's really helped to culminate a really beautiful movement. So you actually had 10 years of experience in the mental health field and also served as a youth care worker for juvenile offenders. Talk about that journey and, and the foundation that that gave you to then eventually launch your nonprofit. Yeah. So, you know, it really led to, you know, how can I make a difference? What can I do to just do my part? And I think at a minimal state, that's what we're all charged with, with doing. If they say we can change the life of one person in our community, our neighborhood, we're making a difference. So I just did just that, right? I didn't ever expect at the age of 21, 22 years old, you know, working in a juvenile justice facility that I would change the world. I just wanted to help one person. And so helping one person, helping a few young people, helping a pile of young people who, had, who were serious offenders was a great deal for me. Uh, but again, at the same time, it was also a job, right? I needed employment. Um, so I found a way to create, how do I take care of myself and how do I help people? And, and it allowed me to go get my bachelor's degree in human services at Arkansas Baptist College. And it really just now led me on a long-term journey of knowing you can make a living and you can also help people, which we know today is called social entrepreneurship and building social enterprises. And so that work culminated in a few ways that doesn't never give me a day off work because I don't feel like I'm at work. This is truly something that I'm doing as a part of my purpose and my path. I never feel like I'm doing a day of work because this is you know, truly something that I not only love to do, but it's also um, it's a very tangible way of changing the life of others and being able to provide for your family and provide jobs and create jobs for others. So that's the part that I'm most excited about is that something that's having such a high grade need for helping people, I believe you can also turn that into a way of helping yourself and, and, and doing so much for the uh, economic good of others. Just out of curiosity, that judge, and I think I've heard you say that that it was that promise that you made to that judge, that was a, a huge turning point, and you took that promise super serious obviously. Uh, are you still in contact with that judge? Does she, does yeah. she know where, where you have yeah. ended up? I, I just got to hear the rest of the story. Yeah. I, I've always had a vision of doing some work with her. I actually, I'm really good friends with her son. He's an attorney. I talk with her husband every now and then. Uh, yeah. They're really good friends. They're really good. I'm sorry, colleagues and almost like family. Wow. Um, judge George Warren recently retired from the bench as a juvenile judge. Um, she's like a local legend in my hometown. And even nationally, she's helped set standards in courts or crimes and really infusing trauma-informed care through sentencing. Just a really beautiful lady who set an amazing legacy, recently named um, on the Arkansas Hall of Fame. Just an amazing person. And so, yeah, we built a relationship probably a few years ago. Um, didn't know that she would be presenting at a conference. I was presenting at a conference. We both got an award. Um, wow. And, you know, as we got that award, I was really in tears as I was, it was my first time to publicly thank her since I had been, I had never seen her since I had gotten out of, gotten out of jail. And so I was getting an award and she was getting an award and it was my way of, you know, and as you can imagine, there was not a dry eye in the room. <laughs> so, you know, it was, it was a beautiful moment, but yeah, we have a fairly close relationship and, you know, I'm just grateful that, um, I mean, hey, how many people can actually have a relationship with, the, you know, the person that uh, <laughs> gave them a chance to get out of jail, right? So, you know, I think I'm living a good life. I can't complain. I love that story. I, I always love the stories of when you see a, an actor or an author or or a Nobel Prize winner stand on stage and it was it was their grade school teacher that became the catalyst for them to turn their life around or to inspire them to pursue their careers. Yours is a bit different than that, but even that much more profound that it was a judge that gave you that second chance and you did something with that. Yeah, absolutely. 
And I have to just tell everybody before we move on that Lorenzo was recognized mental health advocate, uh, famous, notable alumni of his college alma mater. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Um, grateful. Uh, went to a small HBCU in Arkansas, a small um, Christian college, um, and just glad to you know, pay it forward and being alumni of an institution again, I think is creating academic opportunities for underserved communities. And so, but also glad to now hold a mantle. I believe hopefully that will shine light for others to come through. That's great. Before we get into your nonprofit and why you, you started all of that, I want to ask you about the phrase, freedom is your birthright, and why that phrase is so profound for you. Yeah, so freedom is your birthright is, you know, I was born in jail to an incarcerated mother, so I was not born free. And so as I speak about it from my story, a lot of us were maybe, you know, obviously a, a lot of the population was maybe not born in prison, but there's also a huge population of people that were. But even those who whether you were or were not born in the prison industrial complex, I believe that in some ways we can be trapped, whether that's socially, you know, morally, through our lineage, we can be trapped a lot of the times, which causes us to not be free. Being free is obviously being financially free is a lot of people's goal, but also being socially, emotionally free is the true beacon of direction of where we should all be really trying to go. And so freedom is your birthright is really is um, the origin is, you know, it's in our, it all starts in our mind. Um, and once we feel that we've achieved freedom in our mind, our outer world will reflect that. And so I, I encourage the people that I work with, team members, community members, people that we serve, customers that we serve, is that it all freedom really starts in your mind. And once you create that, you can really create a beautiful external world. And that's mental health, right? And so once we mentally are in a good place, we spiritually and financially can get in a better place. Wow. And so it, it even starts at that as well. And so it, it is just another way of expressing that we should be working towards mental, uh, being st stable, uh, being healthy, but also that creates our external world. And, and it's also our birthright. Everyone has a right to experience freedom. And so I think it may look different for everyone on different levels, but we all have our natural birthright to feel that way. And I think that's the other thing is this is not a specific origin or demographic of people who can experience that. It also says that you don't just have to be um, super wealthy to experience that, but because it, it all starts in the mind, right? And so right. I think it's just letting people know freedom is your birthright, and that's something that you deserve and that you're required to have. Wow. I want to switch gears here a little bit. So your aunt took over, and you moved in with her. She owned hair salons, and so on Saturdays, that's, that's where you were hanging out. And I don't think that there's anybody listening to this. You certainly don't have to be uh, part of the beauty industry community to know that hair salons, barber shops are a gathering spot. Coffee shops can be a gathering spot as well, but but absolutely hair salons. And in fact, throughout their history, barber shops have been the pulse of communities, including the, the black community where people can exchange stories, they can discuss sports, they can air their grievances. And in Atlanta, Lorenzo, this is where you made that startling connection with that barbershops presents a really unique opportunity to offer therapy to black men and also to other communities. So talk about that because you said that personally, you have felt that support. You feel like you have been heard and celebrated and not just tolerated while visiting a barbershop? Yeah, you know, I think it's really, um, as you know, being in the grooming space, it comes with a lot of opportunity around working with people. And, you know, I, and I think it's been an, um, an astonishing opportunity to serve in that space and be a beacon of light to others and, our, you know, uh, lifting up 
you know, I really want to take a step back and say we're just lifting up the natural assets that beauty shops and barbershops already have. We're not really creating anything that doesn't exist. It's like the art on the wall, right? It's like we're really bringing that out, right? Creating a story. How is that art created? Who done that? You know, how is that benefit the world? What's the meaning behind that? And that's really what we're doing in shops and salons, right? We're taking what those institutions have already been put there to do, right? We're taking history. We're preserving that history through storytelling. We're offering that people engage. We're offering for feedback. And then we're creating innovation. And I think we just have to think about that in a way that's unifying that everybody plays a role in that because that's how our institutions work. That's how our educational institutions, they, you know, we preserve those through stories, through endowments, through scholarships, through education. And so we have to preserve mental health and uh, well-being, quality of life through these institutions as well. And I like to call barbershop salons a part of our, their institutional asset to the community. I love that you say that. I have to tell you this funny story. A, a friend of mine, a very good friend of mine, who is a clinical psychologist, and he tells me the story of a patient of his that he was working with and gave her some some pretty profound advice. And, and her response was, you know what, let me run that by my hairdresser. <laughs> so he's thinking, wait a minute, I'm the clinical psychologist. I'm the one with the PhD. But you want to get advice and get permission from your hairdresser to take my advice. And I could, I am in the beauty industry and I could stand in front of a, a thousand hairdressers in a room and I ask them to complete this sentence. Your job is to help people look good and to feel good. And in unison, they all say that. That's my job to help people feel good. And so you're right. That hair salon, that barbershop is a gathering spot where people feel safe, where they feel like they belong. And when they feel that comfort, when they feel that safety, absolutely, they share. And and that's what you're capitalizing on. Yeah, absolutely. No, for sure. That's, And I, I'm grateful, again, when to, to make a difference and to all the listeners, um, listen to Masters. Um, we all should, you know, continue to engage into our natural assets that are already giving us value. And um, you know, I think that's what we're accomplishing and hopefully inspiring others to accomplish as well. So growing up in your aunt's salon, really in particular, what did you witness in terms of the conversations and the relationships that were nurtured in that space? You know, I witnessed uh, life, you know, people's lives, um, life in general, triumph, grief, early seeing people bring new babies into the world, seeing people graduate from college, watching people go through divorces watching families be torn apart, watching families come together. All of that I witnessed growing up in my aunt's beauty salon and watching my aunt essentially be a therapist to that. <laughs> watching the other stylists and operators actually be a therapist to those things as well. That's right there in itself really magnified the movement because we watch people, I witness people go through some really trying things, but then some really beautiful moments by coming to that beauty shop on Saturdays, on Fridays, top of the week, end of the week. Anytime any kind of things was going on in the community, political, social, school, sports, all of those things were brought there in some kind of way. New restaurants being built, people celebrate new businesses being built. Um, all of those things were <laughs> spread through the beauty shop. And so why not talk about our mental health, our well-being, it's, it's just an ideal you know, place to think about. Um, and so it was reimagining uh, mental health clinics inside of that, right? But in a way that doesn't take away from the actual shop itself. And I believe that's where we've become creative is that we're not actually trying to, you know, put a clinic inside of a place. We just wanted to create the conversation. And um, I think there's some amazing people that are doing that work. We really want to preserve why those institutions even exist, you know, and, and also preserve the entrepreneurship that these barbers and stylists are after. You know, they're after entrepreneurship, they're after making a difference and making a life for themselves. And so we want to preserve what we do inside of that and make it easy for both of them to go well together. Right. So that's what I'm most excited about, about creating a force between those two areas. Well, we're going to get into the Confess Project and 
what it's all about and how it works. Cause I'm sure maybe people listening to this right now, they're thinking, wait, they have trained over 3,500 barbers. So they're training barbers on how to be therapists. And that's not what this is all about. This is about, uh, again, creating that safe place where you can then refer people to the right resources. I, I saw this sign that said, uh, therapy too expensive, get a haircut instead. <laughs> I love that. Yes, 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 absolutely. And I, I think that's a, a very beautiful expression as well. But you're right. We're training people to be advocates. Uh, therapy is, is so, I think, connected to mental health advocacy. Just, you know, obviously they, they share the same space in so many ways, but you're absolutely right is that these barbers and stylists are advocates and they're really they're the first resource in most sense before someone right. even gets to a therapist. And I think that's wow. what's really powerful. So, Well, I want to read this statement. The Confess Project exemplifies how modern therapy needs to extend beyond sterile psychiatrists' offices and dive into making positive impacts within the real world. I love that. Let's talk about the Confess Project and, and how that came about. Again, your goal, your mission here. Your purpose is, first of all, to remove that, that stigma for those within the Black community seeking therapy is shrouded in stigma due to that misconception that asking for help is a sign of weakness. And it's not just within the Black community. I'm sure it's in, in many communities. And, uh, but statistically, again, after studying you and, and the great work that you do, only 25% of African-Americans seek treatment for mental health issues compared to 40% of white individuals. So talk to us about the Confess Project and the mission, how it works, how it plays out, and and obviously how we can get involved, how we can support. Yeah, so the you know the Confess Project historically has been courageous for training barbers and stylists on a simple framework, how to be great active listeners, how to practice positive communication, how to utilize validation, how to use the skill of stigma reduction. So it's those four points. Can you repeat those? Because that's you call that your four-point tier training. So what are the four points again? Active listening, validation, positive communication, and stigma reduction. Okay. And these four tools have also been evaluated by Harvard University to help challenge the systemic challenges we have around interpersonal community violence, suicide prevention, domestic violence. These few areas, really those skills in these few areas are magnifying how those societal challenges happen in our communities across the board. And specifically across Black neighborhoods, however, we know that Black neighborhoods are not a representation of the world we live in. So our broader community can benefit from this as well. And so outside of the work we've done with the Confess Project, it's training on that framework. Um, our advisory company is now training other frontline gatekeepers as well. Because we know in a barbershop or a salon, no matter which walk of life, demographic, geography, you're going to come in contact with a principal, a school teacher, a homeless neighbor, an EMT, a firefighter, a police officer, a tattoo artist, a nurse, a grandmother, a single mother, someone who's a caregiver, right, of some sort. And so our Beyond the Shop framework that we utilize is very effective in helping to get gatekeepers involved. Specifically, we've had a track record in doing this with barbers and hairstylists, and it's been amazing to reach a 4 million people and seeing that 90% of them rather receive therapy inside of a shop rather than going to a clinic, that 50% of them are better educated about mental health than they were before the training. And so now we're taking that legacy into other sectors and seeing that we can make a difference. And so I'm just really excited about the growth that we've been able to come from and how the project has evolved to now um, provide their value for communities. Obviously, the training that you provide is to educate barbers and you're now talking about other community gatekeepers on just basic language, words to use, words not to use, because, you know, somebody going through cancer, you wouldn't say to them, hey, just man up, 
get a better attitude. It's all in your head. You can get over this disease, this illness. You would never say that to somebody going through cancer, but those are the exact words that we use to somebody who is struggling with mental health challenges. Yeah. And I, and I think a lot of it is, it's obviously a cultural, you know, component. And, you know, I really think when I talk about man up in the different languages that we're using, a lot of it is really tied to, you know, the way we grew up, you know, I, I grew up going to church often. And, you know, I think about it, my family, my household, church and religion was a big deal. So we, utilize that as a way of not thinking about treatment, thinking about mental health, because God would fix it all, right? So using that context, but then thinking about, you know, what are some other cultural things? Like you said, um, what we raised by a father that said, hey, you know, men don't cry when they get upset. Men don't, you know, lash out, right? And so we don't, we don't become soft. Um, Thinking about women who are, you know, raised by their mothers and they're, you know, being strong and not talking out about how you feel. These are just a few cultural examples and dynamics in families and communities that can actually exacerbate and become a mental health issue later in life. Um, and so, you know, it always starts when we were a child and how that's magnified across, you know, our adulthood. And it may even start in adulthood, but most of the time, as we know, we think about adverse childhood experiences. Most of these things start when we were children. Like what were we accustomed to doing? And it really exacerbates through adulthood. And most of the time, it can become a, a negative mental health challenge that could exist and show up. And so I think that's really important to evaluate in the life of others is, you know, how did I grow up? What are the things I was exposed to? And, you know, how has that taken a toll on my life or has it done any? And, and how can I make a difference or what are some things I can work through? Um, hopefully that hopefully I captured your question the right way. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that those are just a few things that I can say um, that's just worth taking some time to think about. So I, I shared a few statistics, but I, I shared what I read in my research. Obviously you are much more educated than I am in this. Talk to us, give us some statistics about this underserved uh, community when it comes to mental health issues. Yeah. So, you know, when you think about, you know, African-American men between the ages of 13 and 18, suicide is the third leading cause of death. Um, It kind of goes between third and fourth leading cause of death. 18 to 24 is the age. You know, I I don't have the specific data right now about women, but I do know for women of color, it's a bit higher as well. Obviously, we think about children and suicide is becoming an issue um, starting at the age of 10. But also, there's only 4% of clinicians that are people of color. And I believe like 2% that are individuals that are psychiatrists that are licensed. And so one of the ways that we're making a difference now outside of training barbers and community gatekeepers is solving the mental health workforce gap. There is a huge gap of people, not only people of color, but just people from diverse backgrounds, whether they are part of the LBGTQ community, whether it's, you know, women of color, also men of color, particularly, that are clinicians. So when we're talking about training gatekeepers to help support minority and underrepresented communities, underfunded communities, particularly, we really have to be clear about how do we equip the communities around us to help make a difference in that gap. And so that's where I believe we really come up is making a difference in that gap really starts to, you know, train everyday people, everyday professionals. We, we started with beauty and stylists as professionals, but that workforce gap and some of those numbers, when that I just talked about, there's just not enough time to get enough people trained clinically to make that difference that fast. In an ever-evolving world post-pandemic, the mental health issues have truly been exacerbated. And I believe that we have to think innovatively and be pragmatic about how do we make a difference now? And so, you know, this is where, you know, we come in at, right, to providing viable education, evidence-based education that allows to take our communities forward and do the greater good. Okay, so your your story 
your education, your brilliance, your passion absolutely has captured our attention. So, and you, you talk about how you've trained 3,500 barbers. So logistically, tell us how this works. So, so I'm, I'm interested. I want to get involved. I want to work with the Confess Project. What does that training look like? And then, and what am I trained to do? Yeah, so you're trained to be a, a credible messenger, a gatekeeper, you know, active listening, validation, those tools that I talked about, communication, stigma reduction. These are ways that we create a great messenger and a credible messenger in our community. Also, we're training you on how to get mental health resources. What are some things that exist? What are some digital tools that exist? What are some tools are right around the corner for me exist? What are some uh, who are some people I need to know? Where's the thing I can go about knowing about housing? You know, how do I get, I know I'm dealing with food insecurity. How do I get more food? How do I feed people around me? Someone coming to my barbershop, how do I make sure that they know where the local food pantry is? The reason why I say that, because mental health is not housing and food insecurity. These simple things that we need to live is a mental health issue. Right. And so we really have to address a minimal how do we help those people learn how to communicate that so that most people around them that may be dealing with issues can understand where those resources are? Because mo- most of the issues is either misinformation or lack of information, right? And so we're, we're, we're ensuring and bringing the credibility to messengers really being able to message the right information. So when somebody is sharing with us that they're struggling with a mental health challenge, uh, depression, anxiety. It's not just that we have in our Rolodex, in our contact list, uh, the name of a good therapist. You're saying, okay, what about a food pantry? What about housing? What about all kinds of other resources that you say will feed into the mental health challenge? Yeah, absolutely. And so something else that we offer through the Confess Project, uh, through our you know nonprofit side, and this is mostly supported through our partners, is we do provide twice a month focus groups and support groups um, for anybody who's been through our training to attend. Um, and it's just a way to build continuity. It's a way to build community. Uh, we do that ongoing to keep the word going, keep the communication going um, after we've provided that value to the community. And I th- that's something we've been able to, you know, to accomplish over the years. And I think it's been very effective. We're excited to continue to, to do that here, you know, over the next year or so. So, And so somebody signs up for this training. Is it, tell us what that looks like. Is it a virtual online training? Is it, I go to a workshop for eight hours and then I get a certification. I mean, share with us what that looks like. Yeah. So for right now, for barbers and hairstylists, the training is totally free through our grants and our partners that's provided those supportive uh, opportunities to get our barbers and stylists trained. It's been like that since day one. Through our advisory initiative, we training gatekeepers. Um, it is an eight-hour training. We also have a train-to-trainer certification. We're also offering licensing for entities to purchase the licensing of our curriculum and our our program and our materials. And so, you know, that can be as nominal as $150 per day, and it, the cost just goes up depending on the amount of training to become a trainer and go through. But the, the training gets started eight hours, and when I train the trainers, about a two-and-a-half, three-day training, and licensing is about the same, but it's a, a lot more granular, obviously. And so we have different components of how we offer that, but we're excited that, you know, because we were founded, you know, working with barbers and hairstylists, that, that work is found online at the Confess Project of America.org. It is a virtual self-paced training that they can go into. There will be some changes where we, we will allow for them to log more into a portal and show that they are, you know, a licensed cosmetologist, a barber, but we will be making those changes here in the near future. But nevertheless, that training is online. It's accessible. Um, also, we're partnering in different capacities in grooming where we are doing it virtual. So it's just more staying in tune with our social media, seeing what's going on. And then also we're partnering with agencies, governments and municipalities uh, to provide that training for gatekeepers and for people to pay to go through the training to become a gatekeeper, uh, a mental health advocate. So, And this 
just share with our audiences because it's so profound. Share with our audience uh, who was involved in helping you develop and create this certification or this training that you provide. Yeah, absolutely. So worked with a, quite a few of therapists in the past um, that was able to provide that value to myself to develop in this training. Also, you know, working with different scientists and researchers over the years to helping to make. So it was a team effort. It was obviously, you know, my idea was just going inside of shops and salons and just telling my story, <laughs> telling right. my story of, of trauma and getting people to you know get feedback. Well, we, we had to turn that into something that was more, you know, uh, feasible, scalable, something that we could grow. Um, and so it, it has become a, a curriculum. Um, now that lasts eight hours. And obviously I train the trainer lasts about two and a half days. And and so now, we you know, we have a certification model and, you know, printed materials, we have a digital component. We've also recently transitioned this to Spanish and French um, wow. as we're looking to serve more diverse audiences. Um, so, you know, just this has been a development of working with, a lot of different people, you know, Harvard, Georgia State University, University of Arkansas, private clinicians, scientists, psychologists. We've had over 40 years of experience over this curriculum. And so it, it wasn't just a Lorenzo thing. It was a Lorenzo idea. But however, it's been a massive community input of people evaluating and recreating and putting a lot of effort behind this this product that's really powerful. So wow, wow, so powerful! You must just feel so proud. Yeah. What What's next for 2024? Um, 2024. We're excited to take this and create, build, help build surrogates across industries. And I mean that far as you know, we want to get into our local schools. We're excited to now partner with higher education and work with student housing. We're going to be working with municipalities. Um, I've been meeting with city mayors in small rural towns, middle-sized cities. We're really ready to scale. We're ready to go scale. I call it scale wide. We've already scaled up. <laughs> so we're going to scale wide across industries and working with you know partners to helping to get the word out to more people that can be gatekeepers. And I'm really excited about that because this is not about you know, race or your geography or, you know, it's like, you know, are you a gatekeeper? Are you working with people every day? Are you serving others? And are you ready to make a difference? And so I think that's what I'm most excited about. You know, we were trained 4,000 barbers. I think registered is only what um, under, it's, it's only so many barbers in the world, right? So many stylists. Right. And we'll always be known for creating impact in that community it always be, but you know, we, we recognize that this mental health crisis is really aggressive, and um, unfortunately, barbers and stylists just won't fix this complete problem. And so, we want to work with other industries and partner while partnering them with our network. And so, our curriculum, you know, in closing, is named Beyond the Shop, and we named it that because one, our origin of how we started, two, Beyond the Shop is our community. It is therapists, principals, teachers, coaches. They are all beyond the shop. Well, how do they make a difference? By using these tools. Wow. In their everyday communities, in their homes, in their churches, in, in, in local gyms, in, in local places. This is how beyond the shop looks. It is an innovative tool that could start there. And now how do we go forward to help other people? So I love your message and, and the words that you use because all of us belong to a community. Some of us belong to multiple communities, whether yep. that's a community at church, a community in our neighborhood, a community at work, a community where our kids go to school. Yep. And the messaging that you're using is why why not become a gatekeeper for that community? Why not be the person who who brings something powerful and positive to the community that you belong to? Absolutely. Absolutely. To start to wrap things up here, you talk about the three pillars that you are building your brand on, which is uh, empower, inspire, and wealth. Can you talk about that? Yeah, empower, just leading from a place of empowerment, you know, a place of empowering others, you know, inspiring individuals to be themselves, be their best self, inspiring myself to be an inspiration for others. And then wealth, you know, thinking about wealth through not only a financial lens, but thinking about wealth across our holistic, you know, uh, being. And I think that's 
you know, really been excited about culminating all three of these. It really mirrors how I live my life. Either I'm being empowered or I'm empowering others. You know, I'm inspiring others. I'm also being inspired. I have tons of mentors and advisors. You know, I, I look up to you, Wynn. You're, you're now a mentor, someone that I feel that I can glean from. And ultimately, creating wealth, you know, again, whether that's through financial independency, financial ability to thrive, uh, but also, you know, using that as a tool to build wealth across who we are as individuals, you know, because again, when we're mentally in a good place, when we're spiritually in a good place, socially, we'll do good across our whole life. You know, I, I tell barbers and specifically we used to go inside of barbershops and, you know, you know, the culture of working in those barbershops and working in different environments, it's almost a level, can be a level of survival, especially for like, you know, maybe new people coming into the industry or people that's trying to build up a clientele. And we, as we position entrepreneurship in our journey, also positioning that if your clients are mentally well, or people are spiritually and socially well, your business will continue to grow. Right. Your clientele will be stable and you will be able to go to the heights that you imagine. Wow. And I've learned to think about that because I can recall working in a mental health facility, being stressed and burnt out and not being able to go to work to serve others because my cup wasn't full. I was low. I didn't feel right. I was tired. I worked long hours and then maybe I got sick and different things. Like, so when we're not mentally right or we're not spiritually and socially right, even serving others and doing our work, which most stylists and barbers and people in the grooming industry are serving others every day, not only affect us, it affects our clients. Our energy affects other people. And so I think it's just so important that we center ourselves to be empowered, to be inspired, and to center ourselves in wealth in so many ways. So, Wow. What a great, great message here. Lorenzo, you're incredible. Your, your story is incredible. But there are people who who have incredible stories such as yours, but then it doesn't go anywhere. And the fact that you have taken your story, you you use that as your foundation. And I have a feeling if I asked you, hey, Lorenzo, if you could go back and change any part of your story where you were not born in prison to an incarcerated mother, where you did not uh, serve time in jail and had a judge at 17 tell you it's now or never, had you not gone through those experiences, you know, if you could go back and change any of that, I have a feeling that you would say absolutely not. Yeah, absolutely. I, those were some, um, you know, I faced some really challenging moments in my early years. I think the hugest thing to think about is the feelings we experience when we're going through those things. Uh, it, the situations are rough, but I think it's the way we feel mentally about how what's going on. And those are the things that if I had to trade, <laughs> I would trade the emotions. But you're right. I would not trade the experiences. Wow. But because I did experience those emotions, it has allowed me to work, to heal, to grow, to you know, become who I've become, to have a family, to help raise my daughter, to, you know, to for her to matriculate. Um, I think it's, it's important that, you know, we use those experiences as best way we can. And for a long time, I didn't really see this being my calling, to be quite frank, because I guess when you're going through it, who expects to want to help people when you're going through stuff like that? Let's be honest. Um, or when you're hearing family members say, oh, your mother and father were in jail and, oh, they were unstable. And, oh, and like, like who expects to say, oh, I'm going to go out and inspire the world? <laughs> like wow. nobody expects to do that. Like that's an embarrassing, it can be a degrading way of, of, of taking in things. And so it's almost a magical thing that happens internally. No one can explain to help you get to want to do that because when you're going through that, it's a very horrible experience. <laughs> right. I mean, nobody wants to go to jail and sit in jail, right? Like, you know, and so I've got now when things happen, you know, things are not going right. And I can tell my wife, like, yep, I'm going to use this and I'm going to do this to empower this. Well, that's become, that's years of me getting to a point where I know when problems come on, okay, let's use this problem to create you know, a positive. But it just doesn't start that way. And so I just encourage listeners here on the Masters is that, you know, when these things are coming to us, you know, take some time to really think through it and really just, you know, see how, is there a possibility of making this right through empowering others? 
and empowering ourselves. And sometimes it's just hard to see that far down the road. I couldn't see down that road for a long time, but it is possible. And like I said, now when I'm going through things, I'm most of the time thinking about how do I turn that into a positive? Am I I going to write a book? Am I going to share it on a podcast? Am I going to share it on on an interview? Like all of these are ways that I can empower and inspire people. And so it's just, you know, uh, that's just a, a rule of something I've used that's been very helpful. So, Wow. Well, what do they say when you're going through something difficult or challenging? People say, well, one day we're going to laugh about this. Yeah. Well, how about if we laugh sooner than later? One day we're going to use this story to empower and inspire other people. Maybe we could do that sooner than later. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Lorenzo, do you have a final message for our listeners? I think to... Be strong, but be gentle with ourselves. Uh, I think I keep it short, <laughs> but I think those are a few words that I would empower people to just be strong and be gentle with ourselves. You know, be strong as far as being resilient, having efficacy, having support. I think being, I, I want people to think about being strong as having people that love them to help keep them up. Not so much as being strong, keeping something inside. I think we have to identify that being strong can be just having someone to listen to us, you know, and that can create being strong, right? And be kind and gentle with ourselves, taking care of ourselves. I mean, that's something that I'm, you know, really focused on now is really coming uh, to taking care of myself more uh, physically, mentally, um, because I've given out so much. And so I think just figuring out ways to do that with with ourselves is is really powerful. So thank you so much, Wynn, for being a part of the Masters Legacy, being a part of this, it's been a great opportunity. And um, I look forward to seeing how I can be uh, supportive in your community and across your networks um, as we make a difference. Lorenzo, you have no idea. This is just the beginning, my friend. <laughs> I'm so inspired. I'm just so grateful to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate it.